Too many days in the darkness. Welcome to Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, the podcast which brings you the latest in science and practice and challenging mainstream medicine and finding new and exciting ways of having a happier and healthy life. This series is looking specifically at mental health. We've become really concerned about the lack of translation of what science knows into what medicine does. In most societies, including the one I live in, one in five of us will have a serious mental health problem at some stage. The infrastructure, the practice, the gap between treatment and best practice is massive. This podcast series aims to do something about it. Prevention is cure. I'm your host, Professor Grant Schofield. Paul Taylor is an ex-helicopter search and rescue guy. He's a charismatic Irishman. He's a neuroscientist, a nutritionist, and a physical exercise expert. He's got a long history of being what Paul describes as a pracademic, a practical academic, someone who is highly skilled in translating research into practice. He's practical, he's interesting, and you're going to love what he's got to say around stoicism and mental health. Paul will entertain you, but it'll also change your life. Enjoy. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight Okay, g'day, Paul. Good to have you on the show. Paul, I've been a fan for a long time, and I've been mainly a fan around your ability to get the latest research and practice before it even becomes new. How has that journey started? You were originally uh, in helicopters, in the, an Irishman in the British Navy. How do you go from that to where you are now? Yeah, so so look, it's been it's been an interesting journey. And by the way, it's nice to return the favor from you having been on my podcast. Um, I think you were my first guest, actually. Um, so this is a this is a, a long time coming for the payback. But um, look, I originally joined the British Armed Forces. Like you said, I'm I'm an Irish Catholic from a mixed family, um, which is a different connotation in Ireland and everywhere else. Uh, and so I I grew up as a Catholic, but we always lived in Protestant neighborhoods because my parents didn't want us to be bigoted. Um, and then you know when I was at university, I joined the officer training corp, um, which was basically a, a a way to get paid. Um, really good money as a student and have fun, learn to shoot weapons and stuff like that. And then I actually thought, I, I had no intentions of joining the military. And then I actually thought, actually, I think I do want to do this. Uh, and I actually applied to join the Royal Marines, got accepted as an officer, went traveling um, with a couple of my mates, one of whom was also accepted. And the liaison officer put his papers in and forgot to submit mine. Um and I ended up being too old to be a Royal Marines officer and joined the Navy air crew. Um, so it was kind of by default. And they said, oh, if you go and fly helicopters, then you can do your all arms commando course. But it actually worked out really well. Um, so I ended up flying in helicopters, which is probably the best job in the Navy and spent most of my time in Scotland flying around the mountains and islands of Scotland, which was, you know, that whole helicopter search and rescue was probably 40% boredom, 40% excitement and 20% terror. Uh, yeah. So it was, a, it was a pretty interesting journey, but how I got to this, I had done a, a master's degree in exercise physiology or sports science before I joined. So I was always my senior or my secondary roles were always sports officer or something like that. So when I was doing my search and rescue after a tour of anti-submarine warfare, I was still in Scotland and I, I just, I was sports officer. So I started doing a newsletter and I'd started actually doing a master's degree in nutrition. So I started doing a newsletter around exercise, health and fitness, bit of nutrition stuff. And I remember one of the chiefs came up to me, an old crusty chief. 
And he said, oh, that article that you wrote was really good. And he says, not only did it benefit me, but, but my family as well. And just something got me from that. And I thought, you know what? This is what I want to do after I leave the military. Because it's a young single man's game, the military. Yeah, well, so the transition was, uh, well, I did a, a master's in nutrition part-time. Um, and so because you're doing search and rescue, there's a lot of time sitting around. I had a lot of time to, to do that. So my plan was to become a nutritionist and physiologist. At that point, I'd met a young um, Australian lady wandering around Ecuador um, and I ended up getting mugged. We ended up hanging out together. She moved to Scotland and then I left the forces. So we moved over to, to uh, Australia uh, and I went to see, I, I actually, it was, it was interesting because you get a resettlement interview with a retired captain who has this little black book of, of contacts. You know, it's the sort of old boys network. And so all the officers go and, and get resettlement with him. The ratings, they resettle with someone else. But um, we sat down and he said, so uh, any thoughts on what you're going to do? And I said, well, yeah, I've got got my master's in ex phys, just finished my master's in nutrition. Um, I'm doing an American College of Sports Medicine um, thing as part of my resettlement. I'm going to move to Australia and set up as a physiologist and nutritionist. And he laughed and he said, my tentacles don't quite spread that far and particularly into those fields. But he, he said, I can probably just give you one bit of advice. He said, when you get there, just talk to everybody you can about who's who in the industry and, and every time you have a conversation with someone, your last question should be, who do you think I should talk to next? And that was actually really good information. Um, and I ended up working in a guy's gym called Craig Harper, um, who also has a podcast now and a great podcast. And, and actually is a fellow PhD student. He's doing a PhD in neuroscience and he's a little bit older than me. He's 57, I think, or 53. Um, but I, I opened up, inside his gym as a physiologist and nutritionist. And he had 30 personal trainers in there, but I had my own business inside his gym. So that was the kind of start of the whole journey for me. In health and, and do you reckon you've got that sort of first 100 days type thing? When you get into a new country, it's actually quite good because you can do that. Whereas if you've been in, say, Melbourne the whole time, asking those questions would have seemed a bit weird, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and being a foreigner, I think, I, I think helps. And I think in Australia and New Zealand, um, they quite like a foreign accent. I think anywhere likes a foreign accent. So, you know, those sort of doors were, were a little bit open and, and, uh, and it, just, it just worked out really well for me, actually. Um, but then I, I remember I created, I, I had these, uh, this client um, and and she was said she said to me uh, I was trying to get her to change her behaviour and doing all the mistakes that health professionals make right telling her what to do telling her about all of my knowledge and stuff like this and she said Paul I can tell you're really passionate about this but it 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 means lots to you but it doesn't mean a lot to me you know I'm talking about her bloody cholesterol and her VO2 yeah. max and all this stuff and then I realised you know what she's she's got it right this is all about engagement. And that's when I said, I've got a skill gap here. I need to understand human behavior and neuroscience. Um, so I went and did another postgrad in neuroscience. And, and for me, that, that was really the thing where all the pieces started to come together. And so when you look at the name of your podcast and, and the other bits in your life, I see these three words, mind, body, brain, and the sort of integration yeah. between those things. Yeah. And, and and that for me is probably the differentiator. The more it, it's that old thing that the more you read, the more you realize you don't know. <laughs> you know, so there's a lot of experts out there, as you know, Grant, and, and we've spoken about this, but they're very siloed, and that tends to be the way that our education and our science traditionally runs, and it's that. Newtonian Cartesian worldview where you break things down into the smallest component part in order to be able to understand it, which is, is really good for the scientific method. But I think it is lacking when we're talking about a very complex ecosystem as a human being, um, that we are ridiculously complex and, and taking a siloed approach, I think is very, very limited. 
And scientists, of course, find that very hard to break out of that because that's that's their bread and butter, right? They publish papers, they get research grants, and typically you haven't done that by uh, becoming integrated in the way that you have. So uh, as an academic, one of the things I admire about you the most is this, is this integration across so many disciplines to bring together you know, real behavioural change, and I think mm. particularly when we talk about our well-being, you, you've got a particular name you call yourself. Yeah, I, I call myself a pracademic integrationist. So, so what I mean by that is that I'm I'm not an academic in the true sense of the word, like you. Um, yes, I'm doing a PhD now. I'm doing my my research study. So there's a bit of academic in me, but I like to actually look at all of the research that people do, and and actually connect dots to other bits of research. So that's the integration bit, is that dot connecting uh, across different fields. And, and I've done so many mind maps in my time. I've got books full of mind maps where I'm just trying to connect dots here and there for those different fields. But then I'm always looking at a bit of research with the, the so what. So what does this actually mean for real world people? And I think the, the I developed my my skill in that uh, both some some of the military training where it's very experiential learning in the military, but then also uh, early in my post military career, um, I actually started a registered training organization where I certified personal trainers, um, and I had to write the whole course. So what I had to do is is look up all of the science stuff, write it, but then okay, how does this apply? to the individual and how do you teach a trainer to be able to apply that? So I think that education lens um, when combined with some of the experiential stuff from the military and me then being having a, an interest in a number of different areas, um, be it nutrition, neuroscience, um, psychology, um, exercise physiology, and then sleep obviously is, is another one just understanding how to connect those dots, but help people to understand the importance of connecting those dots, right? It's, and so one way you've been able to do that, I think it's probably really the, one of the best latest programs or products that you've put out is this whole ritualize idea. And you've built on this idea of, of a whole number of behaviors, but you talk about that in terms of rituals. Can you yeah. explain what you mean by that and why you've done that, why you've gone with that term and how that works? Yeah, so, so the whole idea, when, when I was creating that, that app, and that was my first app, was called Ritualize. And my, my current one is, is the resilient mind. So I'm taking those principles and focusing um, deep on resilience. But the, the whole idea of a ritual board was actually something that, that I came up with um, when I was boxing. And I, I decided at 40, much to my wife Carly's disgust, that I wanted to become a professional boxer. Um, <laughs> and I'd done, I'd done a few uh, white collar fights, you know, sort of white collar boxing. I'm sure you might have seen that. I think they have it in New Zealand. Yeah. In fact, I yeah, know yeah. they have it in New Zealand as well. Um, and, and then, you know, she, she sort of said, I think your time's done here. And, and when she said that, I was just obsessing about boxing for a couple of weeks. But anyway, I, I eventually persuaded her to let me have one professional fight. And then I would hang my gloves up completely. Right. And so I create just on my bathroom mirror. I, I just did a list. I wrote up on the top of my bathroom mirror. And I still have the photograph of that um, um, professional boxer. So I see my goal every day right at the top beside that. I wrote the word authenticity um, because being authentic is a deeply held value of mine. And I know from digging into the behavior chain science, when you connect um, um, your, your, your behaviors to an, an outcome or sorry, to a deeply held value, then you're much more likely to be successful. Right. And I know, I know you know this stuff, but then I created a whole list of habits that are, are practices that I wanted to do. Um, and I called them rituals. The idea being you think of a ritual, it's just, it's something that you do just as a, as a matter of fact. So, and you just, felt that those were behaviors that would give you some improvement, some move you some steps closer to, to that, that authenticity of a professional boxer. That that's right. So I had my, um, my top one was um, um, my 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 boxing training. So I started off three times a week, then four, then five, then six. You know, I took six months to train up, 
normal professional boxers, eight or 12 week camp, but I'm going up levels and levels. Right. So I had stuff like that. I had my visualization. I had doing some sprint work and then I had a whole heap of little things. And I borrowed this from professor BJ Fogg from Stanford university, uh, who talks about tiny habits and, and, and he trained a lot of the guys, James Clear and these guys who wrote books on atomic habits. But it was actually BJ Fogg who at, at, at has his behavioral science course at Stanford University where all the guys from LinkedIn and Facebook went. And it was all about human behavior. And, and one thing that he said is that um, you've got, it was that whole, the Fogg behavior model is um, uh, that that it's it's all about motivation equals um you, you're it's a trade off between your ability to to actually do that motivate that that behavior and how hard it is, mm-hmm. and then you need to be triggered right. So his thing was yeah have a few hard behaviors but have lots of simple ones. So I ended up on my board lots of things like frogs which are like a, a version of squats. And, you know, initially I was doing a hundred of those a week, then 200. And I had like six or seven things that um, I started to gamify it. And you know what? It was, it was week two because I took a photo that I realized I had all these rituals written down. There's maybe 15 of them and I'm ticking some of them off one a day, but then things like frogs or or push-ups, I'm doing like 30 a day, 50 a day. And I noticed the more that I interacted with my mirror, the more that I was getting motivated, right? And and that's when yeah, I had Because you could have sit in the goal but not gone back to that board, so to speak, and it wouldn't have happened in any way in the same way. Well, that's right. And and so the the thing that I have come up I actually let me tell this story and then I'll get back to the the the, the epiphany. So I realized that 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 I was having getting more motivated. And then I'm like, you muppet. Think about it from a neuroscience perspective, right? Natural rewards for the brain, things that will release dopamine and other pleasure chemicals, um, food, water, um, uh, and uh, 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 inter- integrating with, with, with other people, um, you know, that human connection, sex, and achievement, right? And I realized that ticking stuff off when you set yourself a little goal and then you tick it off, that's achievement, which releases dopamine in the brain. And dopamine, a lot of people associate with pleasure, but is actually the chemical of motivation, right? It, it, it could be said it focuses the mind. It focuses the mind, and it's about goal-directed behavior. Yeah. Um, and so dopamine is the chemical of more. When you have a Krispy Kreme donut, as soon as you take the first bite of that, there are certain chemicals that are released in your brain that are pleasure chemicals, but also dopamine, which says, where's the next bite? And where's the next donut, right? And so it is highly involved in goal-directed behavior and motivation. So I realized that this mirror was just a way to, to, to create a process to for you to set some targets and then tick them off and strengthen your motivation to continue to do it. And you had that visual trigger, which is really, yeah, really cool. Yeah, right. You're writing on the mirror, right? I'm writing on the mirror and I'm seeing it several times yeah. a day. Right. Yeah. So then I created a whole host. I realized that gamifying this is the key. So I created a whole host of if then behaviors. So if I walk through my bedroom door, then I have to do 20 frogs or so you could say 20 squats. If the kettle is on, I drink a lot of tea. I'm ex-military. Um, if the kettle is boiling, then I do um, 30 kick sets which is quite, quite a hard exercise, but it's it's simple. You can do it right there. So I create, if the television is on and the adverts are on, then I do two minutes exercise and I go and tick it off, right? So I created all of these behaviors where I was just nudging that process little bit by little bit and then gamifying it and then going, okay, next week, I'm going to try and beat that week's target, right? And I ended up getting into that ring at 41, fitter than when I joined the military 20 years previously. Right, because I still had my fitness test results for the military, and I redid it, and I and I actually beat it. And it was because of that having the process of rituals and and what I call a ritual board. And mine was a ritual mirror at the time, and um, was really just about um, hacking your own behavior. Right, and 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 the, and the whole thing that I will say, and and it's it's not I don't own this. Lots of people will say this, um, is that process beats outcome every day of the week and process beats goals 
right? Okay, so speaking of outcomes, then I know that everyone's going to be curious right at this moment to know what actually happened in the fight. Uh, well, uh, in the third round, he broke my nose. Um, and, and when that happens, life becomes quite difficult, right? You can see this is not a natural nose. So I had to go to a pretty deep place physically, mentally, and emotionally. But but I ended up winning the fight on point. Uh, and then the end of the night, pissed me with a broken nose and him with 12 stitches in his eye. <laughs> it's really unpleasant. Okay, so we looked at, we've dealt with the outcome, but I, I, I guess that um, what you were reflecting on before that was this idea of process particularly yes. first of all doing the process for this was made it way more fun you, you yes. learned a whole lot about yourself um more than that because of your own uh, academic curiosity you learned more about how you might go forward with helping other people with their own behavior yeah look look, look absolutely that that was the thing where i'm like this is real and and, and it's actually it's bj fogg's theory stuff applied practically and that, that that's that pracademic thing. So so from from then on, it was like, okay, what other research can I take and, and actually turn it into practical tools and solutions that people can use? And and I'm always, you know, I like to give people enough science to to overcome even the strongest skeptic. But then it always in my mind when I'm doing anything, so what? So what, what is the outcome? What's the takeaway for individuals? That's really, really key for me. So just explore this idea of this, this little spaces that you set up with the kettle boiling. One I've, I've struggled over the last six months to get rehabilitated an Achilles injury. Yes. Um, and so what I've ended up doing, and it's been really successful, is every time I get to a set of stairs, I've got these certain exercises that you can do just off a step. And, yes. and every, and every uh, 12 steps... I do another 10 of these things and, nice. and, and it's really rehabilitated. How did you get to that idea of that space and how does that work in, in practice? So it was, it was really about BJ Fogg actually listening to him and talking about tiny habits. And, 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 you know, that was, that was probably, that would have been 10 years ago that I was listening to BJ Fogg's um, thing. I had, um, I'd actually just started my mirror, but I had, big things on it like go training and um, with the you know old school boxing trainer do visualization session I, you know i had five or six quite big things but listening to bj fogg and talking about the tiny habits and his if then behaviors that's when i created all the little things that mean that you engage with the process more right so that whole idea of of just doing something but giving feedback, right? So that feedback, when you tick stuff off, that is building self-efficacy, the belief that what I'm doing is making a difference. And, and we know that that's the single biggest driver of behavior mm. change. And I know you know this, but yeah, that yeah. self-efficacy, that, that belief of what I'm doing is actually working is really, really critical. So the brain, if we think about it, you need to, to set some targets and then you need feedback. And, and having that visual process and um, now we have it in our kitchen. All, all of us have a ritual board in the kitchen. I actually find that it's not as effective as the bathroom mirror because you can eat quite easily walk past it in the kitchen and not see it's there. With the bathroom mirror, it's looking at you. Um, so actually this morning, I'm just starting to write out some cards to stick them on my desk. Just I've got a shelf above my desk for, for my rehab because I'm about to have a hip um, a resurface in a couple of months and I need to do some prehab on it. So I, yeah. I've realized it needs to be somewhere where you're going to see it heaps, right? Having that trigger, that was BJ Fogg's, um, he talks about a trigger or a prompt to do yeah. the behavior is really key. And your prompt was actually walking up the stairs, right? Right. And obviously there's some points that it becomes a bit awkward. Like you decide you're going to do push-ups if whenever you're standing in a queue and you're yes. standing in a, a line for the ATM and all of a sudden you're down doing 50, it's probably going to be a bit awkward, but. That's uh, right. That's right. Exactly. But that's, that's just depends you know, some people don't care. You just yeah. crack on. Yeah. But that's a great way to do it. Yeah. 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 But that's where you could do something like, so I'm doing my rehab and, and I know that, that, that one of my glutes muscles on my right hand side isn't working. So I could be standing in the queue and just switching that on, right. Just yeah. squeezing it and nobody would actually notice. Right. Um, but it's just those little things that that um, that that people can create anything around it, right? You, you get a prompt to do something, whether it's um, say you get on a bus. Okay, that is my prompt to now 
take out my journal and do a bit of reflection or whatever the hell it is, right? It's the, and other people have taken this and called it habit stacking. I think um, one, of, one of the guys, but they actually all stole it off BJ Fogg, who mm-hmm. talks about these if then behaviors, right? So take a habit that you already have and add something onto it. So my wife, Carly, when she makes her coffee in the morning, um, she does her hip mobilization while she's waiting for the coffee machine, right? It's interesting because I started doing that at kids' uh, football, soccer games. I've decided that it was also, besides a chance to watch, it would be a good chance to do some mobilization work through the hips and quads and that sort of thing. Uh, so I've been doing that quite well. It's been great. Um, but uh, my youngest son, whose football I was watching, has now approached me and said, Dad, that's actually an embarrassment to me while I'm on the field. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny grant now is when you get your own back for all for all the little misdemeanors um, that he's he's done over the years just on a completely different subject my kids seem to be embarrassed of me when i when we go out to dinner and i ask the waiter or waitress about you know what's in something or can we have this not that they're, they're thoroughly embarrassed of being with me at all which is a bit of a nuisance because i'm actually paying for it so you know that's so right <laughs> Well, as they get as they get older, they they get very self conscious, don't they? Which which is a great opportunity to embarrass them. I mean, I'm I'm always thinking of different ways to embarrass my children. It's awesome, (laughs) and vice versa, I guess as well. (laughs) Okay, uh, so the the other thing that's been really interesting, where I've seen you move recently, and something that's been really interesting to me, you've been well ahead of me on this, is is you've gone way back in time to some of these ancient philosophies mm. that we weren't the first people to think about well-being on this planet. Yeah, uh, Other people have thought about it. And one in particular has resonated with me. It's the Roman philosophy around stoicism. Yeah. And so I guess stoi- being stoic has got quite a bad rap because it, sto- it stoicism with, with a small s sounds like the exact opposite of what you want to do with mental health, but stoicism with a capital S is different. Can you, do you tell me where you're going with that and what that's all about? Yeah, yeah and, and, and you're absolutely right. I think people really need to understand the difference between small s stoic and, and big s. So small s stoic tends to have that non-emotional stiff upper lip thing, right? And and, and it, it, it came off stoicism and a misunderstanding of stoicism. So stoicism, um, it's actually an ancient Greek philosophy that was then taken on by the Romans um, and and so you've had the, the the famous Stoic philosophers were either Greek or Roman, right? And 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 it actually started back. You can you can trace the origins of Stoicism um, all the way back to Socrates, who wasn't a Stoic himself, but actually a lot of the principles of the, of the of the Stoics um, came from the teachings of Socrates. And what a lot of people don't realize, Socrates was actually a military guy. Um, so and back in those times, you, you know, most young men joined the military. They did martial arts training. Um, and so a lot of the, the foundational philosophy comes from that military martial arts stuff. Right. But the Stoics, you, you know, they, they had to deal with issues that, that were way beyond what we had to deal with. Right. And, and Stoicism um, actually comes from it, it basically roughly translates as straight philosophy. Um, and and so they used to practice it on the agora, which is kind of like the marketplace. And and it's a bit like I don't know if anybody's ever seen Monty Python um, and and the life of Brian, and um, when he sort of falls off the thing and he ends up standing on one of the preachers thing and everybody's listening to him, uh, and you know he t- then tries to run away. But it was street philosophy. So the so that was the first because to that point. The philosophers were kind of upper echelons of society and they talked to themselves, whereas the Stoics said, no, we're actually going to go out and talk on the street to people. And, and so they, um, their whole thing was, was how do we deal with life's challenges? Um, and so when, when you look back, back at it, there is so much wisdom. Uh, and the thing when I was digging into it, um, um, and, and it was an insight I got from a guy called Donald Robertson, um, who's written the book how to think like a Roman emperor and <laughs> is a, 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 and it's a brilliant book, by the way, he's a psychotherapist, um, um, but also has a degree in philosophy. So he's a, a pure philosopher, but also psychotherapist. And I had said to him, there seems to be a lot of stoic philosophy in CBT. And he said, that's because Alison Beck, who started um, cognitive behavior therapy, he said they studied stoic philosophy, but they just didn't um, um, credit it. 
So they were actually stealing a lot of Stoic philosophy principles to create cognitive behavior therapy, which which we know is um, that that the, the probably the most successful talk therapy for anxiety and depression. Sleep. If you look at the the the, the uh, gold standard intervention for sleep is actually CBTI. So CBT for insomnia. Um, then you have acceptance commitment therapy, which is a sub-branch of CBT, um, which is really successful treatment for anxiety and depression. And and and, and it has... Uh, that's that's really interesting. And in, in I've become a big fan of ACT or acceptance mm. commitment therapy in the last several yeah. months. And I've been really drawing the the comparisons with stoic philosophy. So that's interesting to hear that. Yeah, yeah. So it has its roots in it because I had noticed all of this because, and the reason I knew, so I, I, I had done a course in CBT and and my wife Carly is qualified in in ACT. Um, and the other thing, she's also qualified in Japanese psychology uh, and, and particularly Marita therapy, Shoma Marita. Uh, and, and, the, and that's the, similar the, again, right? That's similar it is. The, it is amazing, the similarities. And you know, the other one um, is, is logotherapy by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. And, and when I was talking to Donna Robertson, uh, I, I'd said, for Victor Frankl, uh, because I've seen the strong links. And I remember reading his book as a 17-year-old and had a pretty profound effect on me. And, and I have noticed strong overlaps between stoicism, logotherapy from Frankl, CBT, ACT, and Japanese psychology. And, and I actually thought that Frankl would have studied the stoic philosophers. And Donna Robertson said he has dug into this and as far as he can tell, um, he didn't. And so he came up with this independently, right? Oh, that's, that's um, sort of cool, right? It, it is really cool. And, 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 you know, a lot of his logotherapy was formed in Auschwitz um, when he was a, a, in the, a prisoner of war in Auschwitz. And, and it's, it's about really going through that adversity and, and thinking about how to condition the mind to, to deal with adversity. And that's what the Stoics were all about is, is conditioning the mind and the body to be able to, to deal with whatever life will throw at you. Um, but how do, they, how, do, how do we do that? What are the principles that we're talking about here? So there's a, uh, there's a number of, of, of different principles. The things that, that, that I really have drawn upon with Stoic philosophy is um, Marcus Aurelius, who's a Roman emperor. The, it's called the last of the great Roman emperors. Anybody who's seen the movie Gladiator will, will know who Marcus Aurelius is. But, but he um, said, you, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. So um, one, one of the other big things that plays into that, Epictetus, who, who's, who's one of the, the foremost Stoic philosophies, uh, philosophers, he, he said that everything in our life is in two zones, zone one and zone two. Zone one is the stuff that's within our will or within our power, as we would say, within our control, and, and contains things such as um, your belief systems, what you choose to be afraid of, um, um, your thoughts, your behaviors, your actions, and how you choose to react to your circumstances. He said everything else is zone two. Um, the past, the future, what people think about you, what they say about you, COVID-19. So let's pick three of those things, right? COVID-19, people say to me, what the hell would the Stoics know about a global pandemic? Well, actually, when you look at the time of Marcus Aurelius, mm -hmm. the Antonine plague went throughout the Roman Empire and was at least 100 times as bad as COVID, right? Marcus Aurelius had eight children. He lost five of them to, to the Antonine plague, right? So he had to deal with losing five kids, right? So, I mean, I, I know you've got three boys. Can, can you imagine how bad it would be losing one? Never oh, yeah. mind losing five. Um, and and so so there's 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 that that thing from Mar Marcus Aurelius. There's sort of a couple of things, right? The zone one, zone two stuff, from, from Epictetus. So COVID-19, zone two. And, and, the, and this Epictetus says, when you are faced with big challenges, the key is that we must focus on that which we can control, zone one, and refuse to invest our energy in that which you can't control, right? So there's no point in investing your energy in COVID and how it screwed your business or your social life or whatever. It's a complete waste of energy and waste of time, right? If we go back to um, the past and the future. So the Stoics talked a lot about um, lamenting on the past, which actually, if you think about it, 
is really what what drives a lot of depression. Not exclusively, but but that lamenting on the past um, can really drive depression. And then the future. Um, anxiety is all about the future and and what might happen that could be bad in the future. So the story we, we might describe those as rumination. Absolutely. Yeah. So that 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 rumination, whether it's about the past or the future, um, um, creates problems. And as Marcus Aurelius said, we have power over our mind, not outside events. Realize this, and you will find strength. So I um, I do a lot of stuff on that zone one and zone two. And and get people to to write down you know the stresses that are in their lives and then what's zone one what is zone two, and then it's all about taking action and and this is where I like to bring in a bit of Japanese psychology to to complement it. So in Japanese psychology, um, it, it's really the principle from Shoma Morita was that a lot of us um get into trouble um in our heads because we live a life. Um, driven by feelings. I don't feel like exercising. I feel like having some comfort food. I'm I'm feeling a little bit anxious, so I'm not going to go to the party. Um, for Japanese psychology, the key to a successful life is to live a life of a, a life of action linked to your purpose, despite how you're feeling. And and it's very similar to ACT, as you will see. Yeah. Acceptance, commitment therapy. You accept the negative emotions, you accept the negative feelings, they're just part of life, but you commit to action that is linked to your values or your purpose, right? Yeah, and so, that's a really important thing just to reiterate there. Both of those, and maybe I can say them in a slightly different way to make sure I'm getting that correct, is that you're going to think all sorts of things, positive and negative feelings, and that's just part of being a normal human. Human, yeah. Uh, yeah choosing how to act on those is an entirely different thing. Yeah, look, absolutely. And the Stoics talked about this, but I think in Japanese psychology, it's a little bit more eloquent is they talk about the flashlight of your attention, right? So Japanese psychology, it's all about your attention. And if we think about your attention, it's probably I'm becoming more and more um, of the school of thought that the most powerful thing that we control from a zone one perspective is our attention and where we choose to focus our attention. And, and, and if you think about it from a neuroscience perspective, which I know you're quite across a lot of neuroscience research, your brain will commit sales to what you pay attention to, right? So when we are paying attention to those negative thoughts, but it be the rumination or negative thoughts about the future, our brain is committing sales to it, and it is actually creating wiring and pathways in the brain that to are make being sure strengthened. you in the future do that more. Yeah, that's right, and 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 it's strengthening those pathways, and then you know from Donald Hebb, Hebb and, Hebby and learning Scottish neuroscientist in the 1950s, nerve cells that fire together wire together, and then eventually once you've trod that path through your attention uh, on those thoughts, that becomes the default network. That becomes the default way that your brain will process information, just like an animal that goes through the jungle, primary jungle, the first time it gets through, it's really hard going. But then another one comes along 10 minutes behind it. It's a little bit easier. And then another one, another one, and by the time the 10,000th animal has gone along that path, that, that it's a track. It's a well-worn track, and it's the default way that the animals will go through the jungle, right? So stoicism, acceptance, commitment therapy, and Japanese psychology are all in violent agreement that it is about where you choose to shine the light of your attention. And, and one thing that me and my wife, Carly, have come up with is this idea that in your head, you have all of these different voices in your head. Or, or we like to create characters out of your opposing one. Your inner gremlin is the negative version of you. You know, think what a gremlin is. It gets in there, breaks things, it winds them up. And, and that's the all of that negative thinking, the rumination, also the victim mentality, anger. Actually, you know what the Stoics used to refer to as anger? Temporary insanity, right? Which <laughs> is quite cool when you think about it. Yeah. But and, and so that so, gremlin, that's like in health coaching, we'd call that the saboteur, the sort of yes, giving a label, a, a label to the other voice. That, that's not it's a label. It's a label, and this is a form of self-distancing, right? Yeah. Um, so the saboteur and uh, um, is the same as the concept of the gremlin. 
And, and it's like you just you notice you're in that negative thinking pattern or the victim mentality or you're being self-critical. And then you say to yourself, ah, gremlin, there you are. Yeah. Thanks for that story that you're telling me, but it's not helpful right now. Right. Yeah. And it might be helpful in another situation when my life's in might, imminent danger. Yes. But, Absolutely. But, yeah. and, and and this is the thing. So a lot of us, if we think about the saboteur or the gremlin, a lot of people want to get rid of their saboteur of their gremlin. They want to get rid of their anxiety, their negative thinking, their victim, their, their negative self-talk. They just want to get rid of it. And some approaches in psychology will try to help you do that. But as I said, Japanese psychology act and stoicism, it's really all about, you know what, this this stuff, is. it just is. Uh, the, the Japanese have a beautiful term, uh, uh, arugama, uh, arugamama, uh, or I used to think it was aruga, arugamama, um, which actually sounds a bit better, but it's arugamama, which basically means it is what it is, but I need to now take action. I need to, it's not a, a I completely resign and do nothing so that it, that it just, it is bad stuff happens. It is what it is. What are you going to do? Right. Um, and this is where I, I like to. Because the, the Stoics talk about a similar thing where they, t- it's almost a negative visualization. They, about yeah. The worst possible consequence. Is that a similar uh, thing or is that? It, yeah. It, it, it's linked to it. So, so actually Marcus Aurelius talked a lot about negative visualization and he used to wake up in the morning and, and visualize all the, the uh, unhelpful, nasty people that he would meet that day in order to help him to deal with it. But, and, and a lot of people think, oh, the stories that are all friggin' negative. But he also, um, he also said something that really complements this, um, which is memento mori, right? And I actually have a coin, a memento mori coin sitting beside my bed. Uh, and and Marcus said to himself, Marcus, remember that you are mortal. Remember that you could die at any time. And that's not to be morose. It's to remind you that life is a precious gift and that you should wake up every morning with extreme gratitude just to be alive. And you should use that thought, memento mori, to judge your behaviors and your actions that day. So when you combine that with negative visualization, um, it actually becomes really powerful, right? So I'll give you a quick example of this. COVID-19 happened last year. Um, my business disappeared in 10 days, right? A chasm. Right, because one of, one of the things that you're so strong at is, is these in-person, engaging, motivating, informative yep. sessions in front of large groups of people. That wasn't happening, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so all the conferences, all the, uh, so I do lots of conferences. I do leadership sessions. I do all my stuff is in, most of it's in businesses, right? And within a 10 day period, I had so many emails and phone calls saying, sorry, we have to cancel this event. We have to cancel. We have to cancel. Right. And, and, and I remember one of the, um, the, the, the speakers bureaus who I've been dealing with phoned me up to say, me, this is canceled and that's canceled. I said, but you know what? It's going to be fine by July. And I said, mate, no chance. Because I'd well, seen... And, and, and you're right. It went on for months in Melbourne. Months yeah. And, months and, months. and I'd been looking at what was happening in Italy and I'm going, Jesus. And I'd I'd actually watched the TED talk of Bill Gates that he gave about five years ago saying there's a global pandemic coming and we are ill prepared for it. Right. So actually at this point, you, you know, everything fell apart and, 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 you know, there's, there's part of you goes, Oh, you know, you want to believe that it's going to be okay by July, but me and Carly sat down and said, okay, we need to do some negative visualization. What, what's the worst thing that can happen? Well, actually, you know what, if this continues for a significant amount of time and we don't do something about it, we'll lose our house that we've worked so hard for. Right. And we thought about it and we thought, you know what, if we lose our house, at least our kids don't have bone cancer, right? So at least, you know, we still have this. So we did some gratitude stuff in him. We said, okay, so what's zone one and what is zone two, right? Let's look at all the things that we can control right now. Um, and it was really from a business perspective, we need to do a massive pivot to online. That's the stuff that we can control. We, uh, we can control our spending. We can control this and that. All of this other stuff we cannot control, so let's not invest our energy in it, right? And and so I think a combination of negative visualization with genuine gratitude were, and, and I actually try to do that every morning and wake up and go, how freaking awesome is it 
just to be alive, right? I was a month ago, actually, and a bunch of Navy boys um, that I joined the Navy with sort of put together a little montage of them talking, and every single one of them said, no idea how you made it to 50. (laughs) 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 So I'm like, you know what? Every morning, it is. You know, if you think about it, you think of the shit that happens to people randomly just in the universe that bit that building collapsing in miami uh, you know people getting struck by um earthquakes the lightning global pandemics you, you know just to bus crashes there's just the random stuff that can actually happen to people because the universe just doesn't care right and um, it's, it's incredible that we are still alive and and so Waking up every morning and saying memento mori today is a gift. It's a precious gift and really can change how you view everything. And when you actually seriously use that stoic principle of, of memento mori. So there's an, also in stoicism, as I understand it, you help me with this, you're maybe more of an expert than I am. There's also an element of, of, things won't make me happy, but to, to let go yes. of the, the material and, and deal with that. What, what's going on there? Yeah. So, so look, look the, and the Stoics, a, a lot of people confuse them because, because at the time, um, the, the two major schools of philosophy back in, in, in those days in Greek were, were Epi, Epicurean philosophy and Stoic philosophy and Epicurean and um, basically Epicurious, who was the, the head of that school of thought and um, was like, well, the best life is one where there is little stress and discomfort and it's the pleasure uh, uh, of the good thing. So one of pleasure and lack of discomfort, whereas the Stoics was, were saying it, it's not it's not things that that are important. It, it is how you react to those things so that bad stuff can happen. But it's not actually the event. It is my interpretation of the event that is really important. And it's the same for good stuff. A lot of people think that the Stoics um, walked around in sackcloth and ashes. And, and there was one of them who actually did, uh, was it Drogenes, who, who actually just had a, a, a this sort of a billboard on him and get rid of all his clothes and all of this stuff. But um, and most of them didn't. And, and they actually, if you look at Seneca, Seneca was a, a, a very, very powerful individual. Now, some would say he wasn't the best example of a, of a Stoic because he didn't particularly walk the walk. Um, and, and under Nero, there was a lot of bad shit went down that he was a little bit complacent with. However, the Stoics said that having the, the, the trappings of a good life is okay as long as you are not attached to them as long as they don't become your identity. Because they said they were very pragmatic about this. They said, well, if you take um, um, immense riches, um, you put that in the hands of a of, of a, a a tyrant, that that is actually going to enable that tyrant to do much more evil deeds, right? And so in that case, riches are a bad thing. However, you put those riches in the hands of someone who is truly benevolent, that enables them to do amazing things. And therefore, in this case, the, the riches are good. So it, it wasn't so much um, that whether the event that was important, it was about the interpretation and what you actually do with the event that's really, really key. Okay, and then what about this sort of next logical step with that around comfort and hedonism and discomfort and the, the view that you can only really enjoy comfort and pleasure in the context of knowing discomfort? Yeah, well, well look, I, I, I'm a big fan of that, that, that you, you know, you need, and, and the Stoics, like Epictetus said, we, mu- we must do hard winter, we must do a hard winter's training and not enter into things for which we have not been prepared, right? So basically, that's that whole thing of you actually need to do resilience training. You actually need to seek discomfort. And that was a stoic principle, was about seeking discomfort and and actually going for periods of time without eating and and, and cold water bathing. Like the Stoics, I'm a big fan of cold showers, and I got that from the Stoic philosophers. So that was actually a thing back then. I'm a very big fan of discomfort from cold water and and I guess now we know about many of the, you know, brown fat adaptations, the erosine, yes. the sucrinins, the the, yeah. the, the you know, changes in neurophysiology and these things. But they were doing that back then. 
they were turning up back back then. Marcus Aurelius actually said, Marcus, you should be doing cold weather bathing. Uh, he also talked about vigorous exercise because he said they both develop character. And it is this character that you will need to face challenges in your life, right? That's such a pearl of wisdom, right? And I know me and you have talked about this and and and, and you're raising helicopter kids versus free range kids. Mm. Uh, and, and I'm a big fan, as are you, of, of having my kids go through measured amounts of discomfort, right? Um, because it, it is that... That, that actually builds our character and, and for me is the foundation of resilience. I'm a big fan of the biopsychosocial or biobehavioral resilience. Um, yeah. So there's that, there's that element of it, but there's also the appreciation then of, of the comforts. So I'll give you, a, a, again, a concrete example. Um, when I was in the military, I went through combat survival and resistance to interrogation training, right, which was 10 days of pretty hardcore stuff back then. Um, now you can't get away with half of the stuff that they did because of health and safety. So we had 10 days in the new forest in, in the south of UK in winter when it actually does get a bit nippy. Uh, and we had no sleeping bags for 10 days. Um, we had to... to kick our way into a big thorny bush and that's where we slept. We had a Gore-Tex bivy bag that kept us dry, but had no heat. In the 10 days, the only food they gave us was a chicken between four people and it was alive when we got it. And that was it for 10 days. And, and we walked, I reckon, somewhere between 250 and 350 kilometers in the 10 days on minimal sleep because it was freezing cold. It was sub-zero every night. You'd be so tired that you'd lie down on the hard, cold ground and you'd fall asleep straight away, but you'd wake up shivering your ass off, right? And, and you know, we were, we were in twos. And within about 20 minutes in the first night, me and my mate, uh, Steve, said, mate, um, uh, this is this is um, Chatham House rules. What goes on tour stays on tour. Who's spooning who, right? But I <laughs> and, and look, I could have forgot about that. But um, now I, I have pretty much ever since then, every night whenever I lie down in, in bed. So I do two things. I, I bookend my day with gratitude. I wake up every morning. I think. How freaking awesome is it to be alive, right? Memento mori. And then every night when I'm lying down, as I lie down in, 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 my, in my bed, I say to myself, how freaking awesome is a mattress and a pillow and a, and a dooner? Um, That's and a I, very good point, though, isn't it? Because that, like, that, the, the, the state of your house and the insulation and the warmth and or cool as it needs to be and the, the comfort of those things and the technology of those things, compared to any other time in human history, you've got, access to the, some of the most comfortable things ever. Yeah. And, and I actually think it's the undoing of us of, as a species. And, and yeah. if we think about it, we are biologically wired to seek comfort, right? Uh, which is cool thing when you're a bloody hunter gatherer living in really tough times, being biologically wired to huddle up together in a cave um, around a fire and share some food. That's a great thing. But with this technology, we can now lie in our house temperature controlled and we can almost have any food that we want delivered. We don't have to get up and turn the bloody TV over. We don't have to turn, turn, close the, get up and close the blinds. You know, there's all electronic stuff. And, and we, th this being wired for comfort is not good in the environment of ubiquitous comfort. Um, right. Without discomfort, you just continue further to the right on that continuum. And there's no end to it. Uh, absolutely, and, and look for me, the the analogy is the same as the thrifty genotype. You know, we we are biologically wired, and and some more than others, um, to want to store fat, um, and and that's cool when you're out, um, in going through winter when there's very little food because it helps you get through. But when we live in an, an environment of abundance, that thrifty genotype is is a disaster, right? We haven't adapted yet. As you know, it, it takes thousands and thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of years for um, genetic adaptations to happen. Um, but what we've done since the Industrial Revolution, we've stopped adapting to our environment and we've changed it more and more to a point where I think we're no longer optimally matched to it from a genetics perspective. So we've actually got to go out of a way to hack it. Is it like for yes. nutrition, it's obvious. Like You've, you've yeah. got to make some effort if you just live in the current ultra-processed food environment is going to end badly. But I think what yes. I'm hearing from you now is also a similar 
view of maybe seeking discomfort, reset ourselves in terms of our well-being and especially our mental health? Absolutely. I'm a massive proponent of this. I mean, most people who are out there talk about resilience. They they talk about it from a positive psychology perspective, gratitude, empathy, mindfulness. And, and, And my argument is always that stuff's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Right, we we need to actually build resilience on 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 a bedrock of 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 discomfort, right? And 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 let 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 me give you a, a very clear example of this. So when we exercise, and um, as you know, it exercise is so good for us, but it is good for us because it's a stressor. And Professor Frank Booth showed back in two thousand and five that exercise controls your gene expression. And every time you exercise, there's three waves of gene expression. The first wave, me and you are big fans of heat shock proteins. Uh, And these are little proteins that get inside your cells and fix the damage, but they then trigger another wave of gene expression, which is metabolic priority genes that basically just make your ecosystem function really, really well, right? The other thing, cold water um, um, uh, releases. Um, we we um, we now know that cold water uh, exposure um, actually releases arison, or, or I think you might pronounce it differently, or irisin. Um, irisin. I was calling it irisin, uh, but irisin. I haven't heard anyone say that. I've, I've only read it. So what, what do you call yeah, it? That's You're the, probably it's right. It's just my it's my Irish accent, mate. I call it arison. Um, <laughs> uh, but but so so if you look at it, it, there are there are biological things that happen. Like when we exercise, lactate, the production of lactate. Um, from higher intensity exercise, lactate actually crosses the blood-brain barrier and, and actually re- ends up releasing BDNF, which helps us to grow new brain cells and create new connections and strengthen those brain cells, right? And then it's also used as a priority fuel in the brain itself and recycled that way That's as well. Right. So you've got all sorts of things happening. Yeah, yeah. So there's really cool stuff that happens biologically when you put yourself in discomfort. And and this is the thing. Um, Hormesis, I know you're a big fan of it. Uh, I'm a massive fan of it. That which does not kill us makes us stronger, right? And Frederick Nietzsche over 100 years ago, and there's over 600 known hormetic stressors in the environment, right? And and, and it was first discovered... um, by um, plants being exposed to, um, uh, to, to to certain chemicals that would kill them. And then they reduced the dosage of them and those plants actually flourished. So it was that sublethal exposure to a toxin. And, and, and there was some more interesting stuff actually around uh, bird life, around Chernobyl with the, with the yes. nuclear fallout there. And they, they come back and they discover a thriving bird life. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and birds that had, a, had just developed a resilience to that uh, ionizing radiation um, were able to deal with it. And, and actually, it was another study of the Chernobyl rescue workers who went yeah. in and got low-dosing radiation that we thought was actually going to be pretty bad for them. When they were followed up 30 years later, they had less cancer than control groups, right? Mm. So it's that whole thing. And, and my father-in-law is a radiologist. He was taught any exposure to radiation is bad for you. Um, whereas we now know there is a threshold, a hormetic threshold that that a low dose of that can actually make you stronger, and it does it because it upregulates stress response genes uh, and and antioxidant things, superoxide dispositives, catalase, glutathione peroxidase. Like there's amazing shit that happens in our biochemistry when we expose ourselves to low level stresses and toxins. Yeah. And and there's amazing stuff the other way, I guess you've argued, then when we don't expose ourselves to any stress or discomfort. Because we're, we're trying to save we're trying to save resources, right? So we're so we're down regulating those processes to be less good at coping with adversity. That that that's a really good point. You know, you know, it's like use it or lose it. So you, again, let's go back to exercise because everybody can understand it. That you you train, you exercise, you become fitter, you become bigger, faster, stronger because of exposure to that stress. You then remove that stress, the body has got no reason to stay big, fast, strong, and, and it, it reverts back and you actually lose a lot of those gains and the metabolic pathways associated with them become down-regulated. This is yeah, the why, thing maintain we, that, why, why maintain that if you're not going to use it? That's right. That's that's right. So, uh, I, and, and this is the thing that that I say to people, that that because we live in this world with, with a, a very controlled, comfort-driven environment, we a lot of us... Um, have to go and actively seek 
discomfort in order to activate those critical pathways. And they're critical for both growth and survival. I want to talk, Paul, now about, I'm just curious with you, achieve so much. You're a great translator. You're successful. Uh, I mean, your kids are achieving stuff and you've done stuff with them in, in martial arts. You've, you've started and moved on businesses and done that successfully. What motivates you now? What, why, why do you keep doing what you do? And what's, what's coming up? Yeah, so, so I think if I go back, the, the, I think the key motivator for me in this whole space was um, eight mates getting killed in a helicopter crash, um, two of our helicopters um, colliding together um, back in the Gulf. And, and, and I was quite lucky not to be on one of those helicopters. I had been shifted. Um, uh, there was a, a, a search and rescue job came up. I went there instead of going out to the Gulf. But anyway, eight, eight guys died, two really close friends of mine. And, and when that happens, you start to think about your own mortality. And, and, and I started thinking about, okay, post-military, you know, what am I going to do with my life? And, and it was the very next week that that story with the chief came up where he said, you know, that was really cool. And I actually just had that thing. I actually want to help people become better versions of themselves, right? And so now I... My kind of tombstone statement, I'm a big fan when I do workshops of getting everybody to create a tombstone statement, like what would sum up your life? And mine is military man turned educator to help others become better versions of themselves. And so that that goes for my for my work life, for my personal life with my mates and, and also with my family, right? Helping, trying to help my kids and, and my wife to become better versions of themselves and they help me. And, and so in order to be able to do that, I need to stay on the the bleeding edge of of research to to so that I, and I need to be able to translate that, um so and and give people uh, a a both the the reason and to help them then find their why um, for how they're going to do it because if I was just giving people information like an academic. Um, I wouldn't be helping people to become better versions of themselves because yeah, 100% true. That's, uh, that's, yeah. that's such an important thing for people to understand, isn't it? Yeah. And, and, and I, I, there's a part of me that would love a life of academia and would love to be like you in a lab doing cutting edge research and all of that. But I actually think I'm better placed and my, 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 my skill set is better served interfacing with people like you and, and, and other people who are publishing research and going, Okay, that's a really cool bit of information. How does this connect into this whole um, ecosystem of things that I'm 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 trying to educate people on, and and how do we help them actually to do it right? So, so if, in order for me to be effective in my sort of mission statement, I need to continue to learn, uh, and I need to continue to teach and get feedback on what's working and what's not working, so that I can continually refine it. Um, and and the beauty is, I'm very lucky, and I've got what the the Japanese call ikigai. Um, you know that, that you take that ikigai principle, you apply it to work. It's a little bit of a bastardization, but um, something something you love, something you're passionate about, something the world needs, and something you can get paid for. Um, right, and pe- people will see that. You generally see there's four 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 uh, intersecting four, four Venn diagram circles, and there's a landing point in the middle called ikigai, which is where those yeah. four pieces that you turned to talk about four come together. You, you feel you land there anyway. Yeah, yeah, and, and 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 look, I'm very fortunate that I do, but I'm all I, I'm I, I'm very passionate about what I do. So for me, you know, going and reading the research it isn't a chore. That that's exciting. I get excited about academic journals, right? And when I read one that that showed um, arison or arisen is actually released from when you expose yourself to cold water as well as exercise, I'm like, wow, this is so exciting. I can't wait to tell people about this. Well, I feel the same way with that stuff. And I guess, therefore, the point is that I feel that you're trying to make, I'm not sure if it is, that that you can't stop doing that because no. you, then you won't be on the edge and therefore then, you won't then, be Then, won't then be I won't be – that's right. I, w- I won't be effective – in my in my mission, if I take my foot off the gas, I, I won't be effective. I mean, I'm doing my my PhD psychology, and I, and I'm thinking, okay, well, what what's next? What's the one after that? 
um, you know, I've got I've got neuroscience, I've got physiology, I've got nutrition, um, and I, then I have psychology. Like, what what else? What what's going to be next? Because it certainly won't be the last um, um, the course that I do. Yeah, right. They keep unfolding, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. All right, Paul. Thanks so much for coming on the show. How do people get a hold of you and see your other stuff? You've got your your Mind Body Brain podcast, which is an absolute cracker. Yeah. That that's uh, probably that's probably the easiest way. The Mind Body Brain Project is the name of the podcast. So just um, look it up on your your favorite podcast player. Also, my website is the Mind Body Brain Performance Institute. Um, so there's stuff on there for corporates. Um, there's stuff on there for individuals. We're actually just launching our uh, our second Better You program in, in a couple of weeks um, for for the general public. Um, so that's probably the best place. Or they can follow me on Instagram at Mind Body Brain PI, or on LinkedIn. Just search Paul Taylor underscore nineteen seventy one. All right, Paul. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Mate, absolute pleasure. You've been listening to. Prevention is Cure, brought to you by Precure.com, with me, Professor Grant Schofield. At Precure, we're developing a way to help medicine help change the world. We're filling that gap. We're helping train health coaches and mental health coaches. We're bringing short but effective behaviour change programs over 29 days to you, to help you learn for yourself and help others as well be healthier. We're trying to create a community of like-minded people, people like you who want to use the latest science and practice to change lives for the better. Join us at Precure.com. Get involved in our communities. We'd love to have you along for the ride. Precure.com. Too many days in the darkness Without a glimpse of the light Running tired and broken and scared But I swear I'll never give up the fight